0: Hello, and welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Today, an At Length conversation with Mary Norris. Mary Norris is well-known as the New Yorker's copy editor. Her first book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, was nominated for a Thurber Award for humor. Norris is back with a second book, A Journey into the World of Greek, Greek Language, Greek Culture, and the Land of Greece. Her book is called Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen. Mary Norris is coming to Seattle as a guest of Town Hall to the Summit on Pike on Capitol Hill, May 1st at 7.30. The last time she was in Greece was just after she retired from The New Yorker in February of 2017. Here's a little YouTube ditty to get you in the mood.
1: Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, oh,
0: Mary oh Norris, God. Steve uh, Scherr yes. from Seattle.
1: Hi, Bye Steve.
0: Hello. Thanks for talking with me.
1: You're welcome. Pleasure.
0: Thank you. I yeah, I like that the uh, the subtitle of Greek to me is Adventures of the Comic Queen. Since your first book between you and me was Confessions of a Comic Queen, it's good that you can have adventures once you've confessed.
1: <laughs> right. Instead of after. <laughs>
0: <laughs> instead of after. Right. And the next one will be, um, I guess you'll have to figure that out yet, right?
1: I have, that's kind of in the works. I had um, I was in a grocery store recently, looking at all the different kinds of fake milk. Uh
0: huh.
1: And a neighbor, you know, oat milk, and I'm trying trying to write something about that. And a neighbor came by and said, "The comma queen milking it." <laughs> <laughs> I may try to use that. We'll see.
0: Do people see you and and worry about? Uh about uh, talking are they uncomfortable talking or sending you letters or emails because they think oh this this person will always be looking at my punctuation and my grammar
1: i think people do worry about that especially writing i don't know that if anyone you know there's no there's nothing scary about approaching me i'm not scary um i think people do take an extra hard look at their emails before sending them to me though yes
0: well, that's okay, right?
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I
1: also would never, you know, an email is an email. It disappears. It's not uh, something that's graved in stone. So.
0: But not no not not so much any longer, right? I mean, they're saved and they become uh, evidence in trials and evidence of of, of wrongdoing. At least, Ooh. if people are caught, they should have their punctuation and their spelling correct.
1: <laughs> right right i guess that's true even if you delete an email is it always there to be retrieved by someone
0: that's what they say that's what the forensics people say right
1: oh my that that's food for thought right there hmm.
0: right we're always we're always existing in the world of the of digital the digital world so in reading this book i was th- many questions and lots of things to think about but i was just wondering there are many pages with sentences that have many commas and many sentences that have colons and semicolons that just just run with colons and semicolons and I'll, I want to ask you about the use of semicolons and colons because I'm always confused. But I was wondering, were you just was this just fun for you? I'm just going to put as many commas in this in this uh, in this book and as many colons and semicolons. It, was it just fun to use so much punctuation?
1: No, I really didn't think of it that way at all. Um, my punctuation is at this point um, probably habitual. Huh. I noticed myself that there are a lot of colons in this book. Maybe you know the colon introduces a list, and it has a forward thrust to it. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just cheating by putting colons in to make the reader. Think there's something coming.
0: <laughs> is that so? What what is the colon?
1: The colon is introducing a list, or is introducing some something that directly answers or completes the clause that comes before. Um, do you have a book in front of you? Do we? Can we find a colon?
0: I sure I could.
1: I bet I could too. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, here's one. Has, we use names from mythology in every walk of life. The Apollo space mission, the luxurious Hermes scarf, thick Olympus yogurt.
1: Ah, yes, that is the answer to the first part of the, the sentence. We use the which walks of life we use Greek mythology in. I, w- I thought the colon was pretty clear. It's the semicolon that muddies the waters sometimes. The colon indicates something that goes forward in a period after a sentence just means that this sentence is over but a colon means this sentence is going to go on and it's going to be a continuation of what I just said and I said that there's there's mythology in every walk of life colon these are some of the walks of life you find mythology in
0: what about the semicolon? How does it muddy the water? What's its use? Do you like answering these questions? I mean, I, I I know you've devoted your life to thinking about these things, but do you also like talking about them?
1: I can get pretty worked up about them still, yes, yes. I do enjoy talking about them. It's kind of funny that after all of these years of being the so-called comma queen, when somebody asks me for an example of a restrictive comma, I don't have it at my fingertips. I never remember in advance that people are going to want to talk about those things. So I'm always starting over every time. (laughs) (laughs) But I did figure something out about the difference between the colon and the semicolon. Um, The colon means something is coming and it's going to keep going. It's going to complete the first half of the the first clause and it'll probably be a list, not necessarily a list, can be a full sentence, and it can continue beyond the sentence that follows the colon directly. There can be several sentences that apply, that that complete the thought that was in the first part of the sentence. A A semicolon has kind of a backward glance built into it. The semicolon um, indicates that what's coming next is going to have some kind of a possibly a causal relationship with the clause that came first in the sentence. Um, I didn't I, I I didn't actually finish about its use as an industrial strength serial comma. <laughs> Um, That is when a list has interior commas in it and commas aren't enough to separate each item in the list if it already has commas in it. So in that case, you, you use a semicolon between the items in the list. But a semicolon in a sentence has to have, this is the way I was taught anyway, it has to be followed by something that is a clause that can stand on its own It often replaces a conjunction, like but or and, and if you have a semicolon, you don't need the but or the and, and it's a mistake usually to use it if you already have a conjunction. But the sentence, the clause that follows will often reflect back on the first half of the sentence and um, amplify it in some... Subtle way, something that is more subtle than what a colon does. I ap-
0: I appreciate that you talk about these things with clarity, but also with fun. This is uh, fun for you, and I like that about uh, both the writing, but also your approach to things. It, it wouldn't be as a, it wouldn't be fun if you weren't having fun to talk about it.
1: Well, you know, it's a spoonful of sugar, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoy it. And I think people will, I think people learn better if they're entertained at the same time, you know? Yeah. I don't think of myself as a teacher or certainly not as a good teacher, but I I do think of myself as a writer. And I think that to get people to pay attention to your writing, you have to amuse them and engage them.
0: You think of yourself as a writer. I was wondering if you felt that being the, the, uh, the copy editor and the page checker for so long has made you a good writer or a better writer?
1: I think it's made me a better punctuator. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think it's made me a better writer because I've gotten to see many good writers at work. I've gotten to see what um, what a good sentence looks like, what a nice balanced sentence can look like and sound like. And the effect of word order. So, you know, of saving the best words for the end of a sentence and things like that. I've gotten to see and admire that in some really good writers.
0: I I, uh, I heard you say that um, you loved editing John Updike, but it was dangerous because he was so good at his uh, selection and his writing that I, I love, what was the phrase you used? Your pen could just slide off the, the pencil yes, would slide exactly. off the page.
1: <laughs> it seemed to have almost a glass surface on it so that nothing nothing would stick. I don't think I would have dreamed of messing with anything. And John Updike was a real professional. The best writers always want the feedback of an editor and a copy editor. And so you could raise issues about the writing with John Updike. You would never just go in there and change something without his permission, though.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. The best writers appreciate a copy editor's suggestions.
1: Is that Absol- right? Absolutely. Yes. They know that we're there to make them look better. Sometimes a writer who is um, not as sure of himself will be defensive. And, And some copy editors, there are some copy editors who are probably not as good as others and have given copy editors the reputation of wanting to impose their own will on the writer and so a writer can get defensive about that and say you leave my prose alone Um, and if a writer says that that's what you do (laughs) you back off
0: better hope they have decent enough prose that it uh, doesn't uh, embarrass the magazine though
1: well that's true that that is usually not a problem. It's <laughs> by the time the prose gets scheduled in an issue of The New Yorker, it's in pretty good shape, usually.
0: Are you still doing full-time copy editing and query proofreading at The at the New Yorker?
1: No. no I retired from The New Yorker in February of 2017. Um, I found although I could write my first book while I was still doing proofreading and copy editing. You know, that the work in that case informed the book. By the time the book came out and I was starting another book on a different subject, it was like having three jobs. I'd be working um, as a copy editor. I still was doing publicity for Between You and Me, and I was also trying to write a book about Greek, and something had to give. <laughs> And I'd reached the age when I could be on Medicare, so I had some health insurance. That is what determines a lot of people's decisions, I think. And and so I left. I also wanted to leave before I got bad at it, you know, before my short-term memory deserted me and I started making mistakes.
0: Yes, I understand, and uh, and you wouldn't have been able to have as many adventures. If uh, In Greece, if you were... Of course, didn't I read that you haven't been back yet? The, the la- when was the last time you were in Greece?
1: I went to Greece right after I retired from the New Yorker for three months. I'd never been able to go for such a long stretch of time. And what I did, something I did something I had always wanted to do. I wanted to go back to the Eastern Aegean, uh, to, uh. to the islands known as the Dodecanese, the 12 islands that... There's more of them, but dodeca means 12, and they're strung along the Turkish coast, and I was enchanted when I went there the first time, but I spent only about five days, and I always wanted to go back and see spring come in the Aegean. So I went in March of 2017, spent an entire month on the island of Rhodes, and then moved to Patmos and spent a month there, and then traveled around going from um, Patmos to Samos to Mykonos to Delos, in the um, Kiklades, or I think people say Cyclades, but I think it's Kiclades, the islands in the center of the Aegean.
0: Yeah, reading this book, you have all these Greek words, some of them in the Greek alphabet, and I do always stumble over them, wondering... How actually do I pronounce this now? I should I should get this right. And in the back of the book, you have the uh, the Greek alphabet. You know, I found um, pretty easily on YouTube, just like we have A B C D E F G. Uh, there are many YouTubes for uh, singing the Greek alphabet. Oh, really? Yeah, for for kids mostly, but, but it's just wonderful. If I could, I'd play you one, but I I don't know if it will play that you would hear it. But it was uh, it was quite funny because does it have
1: the same tune?
0: It, it some of them do have the same tune um some of them do which is which is pretty interesting of itself right but some of them are a little different um um they all uh of course go through all the letters but i'm not always sure if i'm quite grasping the pronunciation of those letters because you know because it's a different alphabet and different sounds do you yeah. uh, do you you don't have that then you don't have a a, a little mnemonic song or anything that you uh that you sing
1: for the greek alphabet no um even for the english alphabet you know to remember the order of certain letters i have to start right at the beginning of the song you know when i tried to write about the alphabet well it was just so boring you know you can't start at the beginning uh i mean i did i i did that at some point i wrote um what i think of as an abc darian for the barbarian but it was boring. I personally got bored and I knew if I was bored that the reader was going to be bored. In fact, I thought to myself I was that the publisher was had really taken a chance on this and that it was going to be a hard sell. And of course it ended up that I found it was easier, it would it would be less boring if I wrote only about the letters that the Greek alphabet has that the English alphabet does not. Like, way at the end, they have phi, chi, and psi, and they also have something called xi. xi. I never know whether to give these letters their modern Greek pronunciation or the ancient Greek. So, modern Greek would be xi, psi, phi, and chi. And... So I tried to focus just on those letters that Greek has, that English doesn't, and even that was boring, and I ended up whittling it all the way down to the letter chi, C-H-I, which looks like an X. Yeah. Yeah. And focusing on that.
0: <laughs> all right, here, tell me if you can hear
1: this. Okay. Well, I can hear that.
0: alpha beta gamma delta epsilon zeta iota e, theta kappa lambda mu nu xi omicron pi rho sigma tau upsilon phi Pretty funny, huh? That,
1: that is wonderful. It's not quite um, what I had imagined. <laughs> there there must be some Greek version of Sesame Street, right?
0: Yes. I think that's what I was coming across. Okay. <laughs> it was very funny. But I, I, I think I would not have even recognized any of the letters, but for the fact that I can go to a college campus and wander around Greek Row.
1: Right. Yes, that is often the only opening Americans have, their only window on the Greek alphabet is the fraternity system.
0: Yeah, and yet I get in, 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 in reading this and in you know reading your writing about it, you do you feel like though we focus so much on Latin, we still benefit from understanding the foundations of our language and the ideas that they come from by studying Greek?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I never did study Latin, so that's a big um, gap in my education and in my knowledge, and I still hope to remedy it, but, you know, we can only do so much. And I reassure myself, I console myself with thinking that by the time I got to Greek and the Greek alphabet, modern Greek and ancient Greek, I asked the right questions. You know, I, I was in my 30s, and I knew how language worked. A little, so, uh, and I, you know, I needed it. I felt I needed it. I love and I love etymology. That's the history of the word and its roots.
0: You um, needed it for your work. I mean, you do talk about how New Yorker uh, helped fund your studies of Greek.
1: Yes, the New Yorker at first was skeptical of my saying that I that um, ancient Greek was relevant to my work on the copy desk. But truly, it informs spelling to a huge degree. Not only are there words in English that are directly descended from Greek, and the spelling of the word tells you where that word came from, um, but also when we make new words, science, especially the medical sciences, depend heavily on greek roots to put together new words in english you know an example is otolaryngologist that's the <laughs> ear nose and throat doctor um and rhinoceros is that means rhino is nose ceros is head i think so the rhinoceros is a creature whose entire head is taken up with its nose, practically. You know, the big horn of the rhinoceros.
0: Oh, I guess that explains why I'm always thinking I'm going to see uh, somebody who is dealing with rhinoceroses when I go see the ear, nose, and throat specialist.
1: Right. <laughs> well, there's a rhinoplasty is the word for a nose job.
0: Of course. Of course.
1: Plastic nose.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I love reading um, acknowledgments in books. And in a way, this goes back to what you are saying about uh, how a, a good writer or a scholar, uh, seeks out and, and benefits from other people. And, and this, these acknowledgments are, are quite long. There are a lot of people that you give credit for. And and you, you write about some of them in the book, but I wanted to ask you about the folks who read your books. I think, what did you call them? The Tahoe Girls. Mary oh, Grimm, Susan Grimm, yes. Trisha Springstub, Kristen Olson.
1: Yes. Those are friends who are writers uh, Susan Grimm is my very oldest friend. We went to this we were in the same school for kindergarten and went to grade school together till the third grade. And then my family moved. But Susan and I were reunited in in the Catholic high school that we went to. She's a poet. Her sister, Mary, is a novelist. Um, and they s- stayed in Cleveland and used every, um, format they could that's not exactly the right word they they found every outlet for writing that they could find in Ohio and so they've had careers as writers without leaving Cleveland and in fact staying in that city has enriched their work I think you know you can tell when a writer knows a city so well because she's lived there all her life anyway Mary and Susan wanted to go to um, a writer's workshop of some sort, and they didn't think they'd be accepted at the same one, so they created one. And they invited me and a lot of other writers they've gotten to know in Ohio, including Kristen Olsen and Tricia Springstub, and rented a house on Kelly's Island in Lake Erie. and And so every fall we go there and bring a piece of writing and share it and remark on each other's work. The Tahoe group is a little subset of that. Chris Olson's family has a home on Lake Tahoe, uh, and she invited us to come for a full week and work on our writing. And it's it's wonderful. We work in the morning privately. You know, uh, some go find some spot at a table and work on writing, and then. We have some fun in the afternoon. We go to Sierraville, this wonderful bird-watching place. We always visit the Donner Park Memorial, or Donner Memorial Park, where the Donner family was trapped. And um, terrible things happened that terrible winter when they tried to take a shortcut and got caught in the snow. And only a few of them survived. So we have a picnic at Donner Park, which is always fun and in the evening after dinner we share our writing we share what we've been working on so a lot of the passages in this book about greek will be familiar to those tahoe girls because they gave me feedback on them. the parts about virginia wolf i know and they helped also with the very end the part about nostalgia at the end
0: i like that part also that uh, you uh... You uh, talk about and you go uh, pay homage to, make a uh, pilgrimage to the house, uh, the Greek house of the writer Patrick Lee Furmore, a, a writer yes. who I only became familiar with the last few months when I came across his book, Between the Water and the Woods.
1: His first books were actually these Greek books, oh. Mani and Rumili. You
0: you write about him that he, um, he liked his details.
1: Oh, he, yeah.
0: He liked to go on with. I think maybe that was one of the sentences that go on with the long lists of, you know, why, if three would do as an example, why not do 12 or, or 13?
1: One of his lists I counted, it was a list of Greeks in the diaspora, you know, like Chicago Greeks or Greeks in uh, London. And there are 91, 91 things on that list. <laughs> so, also, I think I have a bit of the same love of detail. As Patrick Lee Firmer. I think they're also wonderful. You know, if it's something that you love, if if you're looking at the view from a room in the Mani, from above an olive grove out to the sea, it's hard to stop describing all the things that you see that you love. You can, well, I have a good editor, so he does his best to rein me in. But you
0: know, in this these in these modern times. Um, That attention to detail and that that, um, willingness to take the time and hope that people will enjoy the time you've taken to describe, well, it's just not as um, prevalent.
1: True. It's an act of faith, isn't it? (laughs) That people will be interested.
0: Hey, uh, I wonder how you felt about, uh, I'm sure you would have liked to have won, but you were a finalist for the Thurber Prize in humor uh, for for your first book, for *Comma Queen.
1: Right, well, and,
0: and that must be, I mean, James Thurber, the New Yorker, that's sort of, those go hand in hand. That must have been, what were people saying at the New Yorker magazine when they heard that?
1: I don't believe there was that much reaction at the New Yorker magazine. What? what?
0: That's a little <laughs> too staid.
1: Well, I, I don't think there was. The thing about prizes is it's like being a bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, being a finalist in a competition is all its all very well and good. It's nice, but the only thing that really counts <laughs> is whether or not you win. So I think there might have been more attention if I had won the prize.
0: Do you feel that way? I mean, there sure are a lot of people who are advertised in movies as Academy Award nominee. Who do I think of? Glenn Close? I must think of people who have been nominated so many times that it's that that she's the you know, could be in the Guinness Book of World's Records. But <laughs> but she's respected for even being the nominee.
1: Well and I don't mean to say that I'm not I wasn't delighted with the nomination for the Thurber Prize. I love that my book was viewed as as a book of humor, as a humor book. And I also loved that it was the James Thurber Prize because I did a lot of work on Thurber. I did my graduate, my master's thesis on Thurber when I was in graduate school. And and because of the New Yorker connection, I'll tell you honestly, I thought I was fated to win that prize.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, You'll win it with this one then.
1: Oh, um, this one I would be really surprised. I mean, I hope that this book is also funny. I don't expect it to be nominated for a Thurber Prize, though, no.
0: Not as funny? Not focused on funny?
1: Oh, it's focused on funny, and it doesn't have to be just funny to win the Thurber Prize, I don't think. Um, The one that won this year called Priest Daddy, it's very funny, it's wickedly funny, Patricia Lockwood. She is a poet, and when poets write prose, there's a surprise in every sentence. You know, it's really um, rich and dense. And there's some very serious moving stuff in that book. So, oh, who knows? Let's hope that Greek to me is nominated for the Thurber Prize and wins. Who knows?
0: Do you write poetry?
1: I used to write poetry. Um, and I haven't tried my hand at poetry except for a little tiny things in a long time.
0: I like that notion that when poets write prose, they have a surprise in every sentence.
1: Oh, it's rich.
0: Uh, What'd you write your uh, master's thesis on about Thurber?
1: My idea was that Thurber was not appreciated enough because he wrote humor. Thurber also had that idea that he was not taken seriously enough because the work itself was funny and not serious. And I was trying to place Thurber among the great writers, great American writers. He was an admirer of Henry James, and he was on the same track, although I don't know that anybody would agree with me about this. But he was a humorist, um, had to mount to Mark Twain. So I was trying to lift Thurber up. To the status, on the one hand, of Twain, and on the other hand, of Henry James.
0: Well, I I have many Thurber books on my shelf, and and I agree with you. I uh, one of my favorite Thurber stories was uh, about a well, ostensibly about uh, his dog Rex, uh, but it was really a memoir of his brothers and his family and his growing up in. In Ohio, but also just about uh, um, the, the power a dog brings into a, a person's life, the, the love a dog brings into a person's life.
1: Oh, yeah, that's nice. My favorite Thurber collection is The, the Night the Bed Fell. <laughs> yes. I think it was one of his earliest ones. It's kind of like a, well, it's supposed to be an um, autobiography or a memoir in the form of uh, these humor pieces.
0: Yeah, you can't read that without that gran- yeah. grandpa's uh, the 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 Civil War veteran grandpa up in the up in yeah. the attic. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you you do like Greek and you go to Greece and uh, it's funny you chose a language which as you point out didn't have punctuation and um everything was in capital letters for a long time. Very hard to read.
1: Very hard to read. I'm um, thank goodness they worked on it over the centuries so that it's more readable now. And they, they, the ancient Greek has periods in it. And (laughs) I don't know if it has commas, but the, the basic mark of punctuation that was missing was the space between words, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And also they could have put a period at the end of the sentence that would have helped. Um, but there were people who labored over it and figured it all out and made the best sense of it that they could. And so we benefit from their work. There are also some subtle words in the Greek language that have punctuation kind of built into them. Like what? Well, they have a, a word in ancient Greek would be pronounced kai, K-A-I. And it's in modern Greek, it's K, and it's the conjunction and And it also can be the adverb even, as in even I can go. And in ancient Greek, they used it to mean and. It would just be between words to compile, to make a list. But it was very light. It had no more weight than a comma. And they even had some words um, that if you combined another, what they call a particle, t with the k, t k, it could act as a semicolon in a sentence it just meant and what i'm going to say next reflects on what i just said you know it was built right into the sentence
0: you seem sometimes like you're reticent to speak the greek or you apologize to the greeks you're speaking to for not quite having mastered the language but I also feel like the way you talk about it, I wonder if many of them have mastered their own language. Well, of course they have, but they must appreciate that you're speaking Greek.
1: Well, Greeks always appreciate any effort by a barbarian to <laughs> master their language um, because you know, not everybody goes to the trouble to try. I'm caught right now, and I, have, I was with the book, between... Um, classical pronunciation and modern pronunciation. My, I prefer modern Greek because that's what people speak, and it's important, I think, to honor the people who are around today and, and are still speaking the language. And the pronunciation that scholars have come up with for ancient Greek, I'm sure that they have reasons that they believe that this is really what, how the language sounded, I just don't buy them. <laughs>
0: it's sort of like what happens with English, isn't it? I mean, we have folks who talk about how ancient English would have sounded, but we or Shakespearean English, but we don't necessarily That's tr- know.
1: That's true. Certainly old English, it would be hard to know, where they didn't have tape recorders. So <laughs> apparently there are clues in poetry, uh, and they have left behind clues, and people have worked up pretty good arguments, proving that they know how a certain word or vowel was pronounced. I'm just, you know, I could spend my whole life trying to figure this out. And I'm not a, a scholar, I'm not an academic, I'm not a classicist. I'm an amateur, and I like to keep it that way.
0: And an adventurer.
1: Oh, thank you. Right.
0: <laughs> you know, um, we, uh, we should, I'll, we'll just touch on the Iliad and the Odyssey, just because you do, and we should. Are you at the point where you can read some of it in, in
1: Greek? Yes. Yes, I can read some of it in Greek. I have read more of it in Greek. This was back in the 80s when I was studying Greek at Columbia. Now I stare and stare and stare. And I at the first reading, I think, oh, I, I will never be able to read this. But I try again. And on the second reading, I still am frustrated on the third reading, and I'm talking about reading a few lines, you know, maybe the first three lines of the Iliad, words start to look familiar to me, and you know, I'm not saying that I can figure out exactly what it says, but at that point, I feel more reassured that I could get it back if I studied. Um, with modern Greek, it's a it's a little easier. I still, you know, despair. At the first reading, and at the second reading, I feel like maybe there's hope. And at the third reading, I get quite a bit of it, but it's at the level of maybe a maybe a fourth grader, a slow fourth grader, that I read. <laughs> we
0: gotta sing that song again. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, you go to Nashville, and you look at uh, Nashville has. Of Greek culture, but also the statue of Athena, right?
1: It has a full-size replica of the Parthenon and, oh, that's right. and the statue of Athena.
0: Um, you do not look down upon that. You, 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 the the story you tell is the story of of in the end. You you seem to, it's not kitschy to you. It's actually something you have come to respect. What's going on there?
1: Well, the first time I saw it, and I went to the uh, Parthenon and what what was funny about it to me at first was that it's not on a hill. You know, one of the great things about the Acropolis in Athens is that these buildings were oh, you know, the blocks of marble were hauled up onto this big jagged rock that sits in the middle of Athens and you see them from a distance. They're like beacons. And the thing that struck me funny about the Nashville Parthenon at first was that, you know, you're just driving by and it's in a kind of a hollow. It's in a basin. So, you know, it doesn't make you look up. You don't have to climb up to it. Um, but when I was in that building itself, I was there before the statue of Athena was completed. They were working on it behind a scaffold. And it's quite wonderful that you can look at all the details of the um, Architecture, I'm hesitant to pronounce any of these words, but I think metopes is one, and friezes, and you can see all the sculpture. These things you cannot see in Greece now, and in fact you can't really see them in, in the British Museum either, although you have a better shot at some of them in the British Museum. Anyway, they... I, it struck me funny, you know, I, I kind of laughed at the guard at the door on my way out that time and he made me feel ashamed. I mean, he seemed to really think that this one was better than the one in Athens because it still had all its parts and they worked. And he, he demonstrated by opening and closing this huge door. It all beautifully worked. So, years later, I was back in Nashville and I met a woman in Nashville, a woman named Lynn Bacleda, and she asked me she came to a book signing at the Parnassus bookshop and she said did you see the Parthenon and I opened my mouth to laugh and I saw her face and I thought better not make fun of this, so I said why, I haven't visited it this time but I have seen it and then she started talking about it and it really is an object of great civic pride, the Nashville Parthenon. They, you know, they wanted that there. It has a, a long history for something in the United States and for something in in Tennessee. I, I've come to appreciate it, and I'm going to go there. In fact, I was invited back to Nashville, and by the people at the Parnassus Bookshop, and we're going to hold the reading and signing in the nashville parthenon and i'm very proud to be doing that
0: well i like that i mean it says something about its endurance and influence the culture and the language doesn't it It,
1: yes exactly you know and nashville is a center of learning the way that athens was a center of learning athena was the goddess of education
0: you mentioned that you might want to pick up latin you been studying Greek a long time. You've made this pilgrimage. You, you write in the book about the nostalgia that you felt and lovely scenes there. Are you going back? Do you, does it still draw you, the country?
1: It does still draw me. And it actually was a relief to realize that it still drew me. Writing a book in English does not leave you a lot of time to study Greek, that was a surprise. I thought when I wrote this book, oh, I'll have time. I'll work up my modern Greek. I'll go back and read some Homer. And I did try to do those things. I did do you know, I did go to Greece for 3 months 2 years ago and I've done a lot of research on Homer, but it was so hard to write the book and I had to leave so much out. You know, I did a lot of research. It was fun doing the research and it was fun writing it up, but then realizing that I could never know as much as the people who, the academics who study Homer and the translators. You know, I'm not at that level. So that was one of the reliefs to realize that the title of the book, Greek to Me, narrowed it down to just what I knew about Greek. It doesn't mean I know everything at all. Um, and it was a relief to realize, even while I was working really hard on the book you know, to have the thought, oh, I can't wait till this is done and I can take a vacation and go to, and I still wanted to go to Greece.
0: Well, thank you for this book. Gets me inspired and and I appreciate you talking to me.
1: Oh, it's it's a pleasure and it's, it's wonderful to hear that the book inspired you. Thank you.
0: Writer Mary Norris, author of Greek to Me, Adventures of the Kama Queen. Coming to Seattle as a guest of Town Hall to the Summit on Pike on Capitol Hill, May 1st at 7.30. Next time you are wandering Greek Row, give some thought to the people who shape the letters and the stories behind them. Thanks for listening. And if you like this show, leave a review at Apple iTunes or at the other places, wherever you find your podcast. Reviews help get the word out. Next time on the show, a conversation with Sandro Galea. Galea is a professor of public health at Boston University. He's also a physician and an epidemiologist. Thomson Reuters listed him as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. He argues that real conversations about health are not about doctors or insurance coverage. Health is about what a society does to help each of its citizens achieve happiness and opportunity and therefore health. Don't forget to listen to my other podcast produced in conjunction with Town Hall in the moment. Jenny Palmer and I talk about what's happening at Town Hall. There are excerpts from the interviews that you hear on at length. And also interviews by other interesting people who are talking to people who are coming to Town Hall. So have a listen to that too, won't you? And we'll talk again. Thanks for listening.